And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning, of course. It is Thursday, second best day of the week. Getting ready to wrap it up already. Of course, Monday was a holiday for MLK Day, and then we had freezes for two days, and so now it's going to warm up today and then get cold again tomorrow. So, <laughs> you know, they said that it's impossible for temperatures to go from sub 20 to 70 in a day. Texas just said, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and then it's gonna go back cold again. So there you go. Hey, climate change. It, it, in Texas, it changes every damn minute. Just, there's an old saying: if you don't like the weather in Texas, just hang around a minute. So um, anyway, a couple of things. Uh, of course, yesterday markets not you know doing great. Of course, markets sold off most of yesterday. Ended in the red. We'll talk about that here in a second. We'll go through some other sectors as well. But uh, this morning, futures are basically flat again as we kind of continue to grind through this kind of consolidation we've been in. So, so far, it's been a pretty boring year, uh, you know, out of the gates, not a lot of excitement. But again, things uh, hopefully will get better. Uh, in two weeks, uh, the, buyback, the blackout window for corporate buybacks will end. And of course, uh, we talked about this in October, you know, when the markets were selling off in October, and we were heading down towards those lows. We were like, hey, you know, October weakness, very likely, but that buyback window opens back up uh, come November the 1st. And as soon as that uh, buyback opened, then of course we had a record number of buybacks actually uh, for that period. Very strong amount of corporations uh, buying back shares. Of course, that helped elevate the rally that we saw going into the year. Uh, so ever since that window closed, which was, um, you know, right here towards the end of December, markets really haven't done a whole lot. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens in two weeks when that window opens back up. But um, again, that's been one of the main buying powers behind the market. Uh, almost 100% of net equity purchases over the course of the last couple of years have been solely attributed to buybacks. And it's just been a very large amount. Um, but uh, outside of that, uh, also today, Michael Leibowitz joining uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the end of QT and the uh, end of cutting rates, the, the start of cutting rates with the Fed. Of course, this has been the, the big topic here as of late. Uh, the market's expecting six rate cuts this year. Uh, that's, you know, much more than what the Fed says. According to the, according to the Federal, uh, Federal Reserve projections, they're only talking about three rate cuts in their uh, projections that they put out. Market's expecting double that. But also now we're talking about the end of QT and why all of a sudden is all this going on? What is that fragility risk within the markets? Uh, we're writing about that in this newsletter uh, this weekend on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, but we'll talk about it some this morning as well with Michael. So again, stick around for that and, and we'll get into that. Also, make sure that you have gotten by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get the tickets for the upcoming economic summit on uh, January the 27th. That's not this Saturday, but next Saturday. Greg Valliere will be here to talk about presidential election cycles, investing in markets. Uh, that link, that banner right at the top of the page. So just click that banner, buy your ticket, and we'd love to see you there. Uh, we'll spend some time, we'll have a panel. Adam Taggart will be there as well to moderate our panel. 
Uh, we'll, we'll take live Q&A, so we'll be able to talk about a lot of things uh, while we're there. We'll feed you also, so it's always good. But anyway, tickets on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Let's, let's go through a couple of interesting markets that are going on right now. So first of all, we'll just start with the S&P. Um, again, you know, kind of interesting right now. Breadth has been good in the market so far. The, the, the number of stocks above their 15-200-day moving average still healthy, but declining. We're starting to see that breadth decline here a little bit. Markets took out the 20-day moving average yesterday. Again, that's not a hugely negative thing. But again, you know, we did this before and then rallied back above it. We'll see if the markets uh, can, can rally back above this and negate that break of the 20-day. If we don't, and the markets fail from here, then we're going to probably test this 50-day moving average around 40-60. So there's certainly some downside risk here in the markets. I don't want to, to negate that at all, but the, under, the underlying uh, situation of the market is still fairly healthy. Um, uh, optimism is still good. Positioning is still strong. Breath is still decent. So again, there's, there's not a lot of concern here that we're going to see a big contraction in the markets, but you know, there's certainly always risk. And, and again, you know, one thing that we can't kind of keep just keeping an eye on here is the volatility index, which has picked up here uh, over the last uh, few days. We've seen a pickup in volatility. This is, it's been a very compressed uh, period that we've had really starting back in November. Um, as you know, we had this kind of run up in volatility in October as the markets were selling off. Everybody was very concerned. It was like, oh, the bear market's back. And we we're like, be careful with that. And then volatility basically collapsed into December. Um, volatility, and you take a look at what's going on with puts. There was no demand for put options. Those have also started picking up here lately as well. People are starting to put on a little bit of protection in portfolios uh, against this kind of market action where we are. But we are seeing a pickup in volatility. Nothing alarming as of yet. But if we start to see volatility break above the 200-day moving average here and starting to really kind of pick up some steam, uh, potentially we'll see a bigger downward move in the markets. But again, haven't seen any real sign of that just yet. Uh, Bitcoin continues to be interesting. You know, after the whole launch of the uh, Bitcoin ETFs a few days ago, of course, you know, they all, all got approved. And finally, uh, the SEC and Gensler approved the issuance of Bitcoin. So we have uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. And so those got issued out. And ever since then, <laughs> Bitcoin's just kind of sold off here. So um, not a lot of action. I, you know, you would have thought that we would have seen a lot more buying activity because of those ETFs come in, uh, but we really haven't seen that yet. And again, not enough data yet on these Bitcoin ETFs to really do any analysis or I'd show you some charts. We need another month or so, and then we can start looking at how they're performing relative to, to the spot, uh, spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, but jumping over to gold here also, um, you know, as we take a look at that, gold continues just to really kind of grind here as well. Um, really hasn't done a whole lot, um, you know, despite the fact that markets were all over the place last year and we, you know, we saw a good bit of inflationary pressures. Uh, gold had a decent rally. We got down to about 1800, rallied up to 2000, but really kind of remains in this range. And, and gold has just been really kind of trending sideways here. Beginning to take out, did take out the 50 day moving average yesterday. Um, and so we're going to kind of watch that here, potentially the 200 day sitting around 1970 ish. So again, there is some downside risk to gold prices near term. We are in a sell signal, getting a little bit oversold here short term, but uh, certainly some downside risk within this kind of topping pattern that we see going on in gold. Again, not overly concerning here just yet, but certainly 
um, you know, kind of a, a corrective consolidative action at, at work in gold prices. And lastly, of course, we would be remiss not to talk about interest rates. Interest rates, you know, moving back up here, we talked about this. Interest rates had gotten very, very oversold or very overbought actually on that decline. They're the inverse of bonds. Um, so during that decline in rates, bonds got very overpriced, yields got very overbought. Seeing a bit of that reversal, it's not been dramatic. This has actually been a very healthy correction in interest rates. We're working through that sell signal. Again, it's inverted because of bond prices. We're, this is a sell signal that normally looks like a buy signal, uh, but that's a sell signal for bonds. Still working through that, getting, you know, working through that process interest rates getting oversold here. We're going to get a decent opportunity here, probably somewhere around the 50-day moving average, around 4.15, 4.19% on the 10-year treasury rate to start looking to add exposure to our bond portfolio as well. So uh, we're getting there. Uh, this has been a very nice, healthy, healthy correctional process. So keep a watch on bonds here. We'll have a good opportunity there to add exposure as well. Uh, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, we'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz and we're talking about the end of QT, rate cuts, what does it all mean? That's coming up on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, it is Thursday. That means Michael Leibowitz joins us this morning. Of course, the big news, uh, well, I shouldn't say the big news, but well, I guess it's big it's uh, kind of been the topic du jour as of late uh, with a lot of people. But this is uh, all about the Fed rate cuts. And uh, now uh, it looks like the end of QT might be near. Uh, this, of course, going on as the yield curve has started to uninvert on, a, on one kind of very, you know, kind of vague uh, indicator. But again, you know, when we take a look at the, the broad measure of all the yield curves, they haven't uninverted yet. So still in that process of inversion, which normally, of course, is, as we talk about, is pre-recessionary. You, you see this kind of pre-recession, but we haven't had a recession yet. Uh, retail sales remain strong. We just saw strong retail sales numbers for December. That's going to bring in GDP in the fourth quarter above 2%, probably around 2 2.5% for GDP growth. So no sign of recession from the the economic side. Um, no real signs of you know credit strains. If you take a look at uh, bond yields as a function of you know corporate bonds or and, and particularly bond spreads, the spreads between different types of bonds, whether they're triple B or triple A, et cetera. No signs of of stress within the credit markets, and yet we have the Fed now talking about cutting rates. And this is very interesting because in just two weeks, so on December the 1st, the federal, uh, Jerome Powell at, in a speech said, we're not even considering rate cuts. On December the 13th at the FOMC meeting, it's like, well, you know, we're now talking about cut, you know, cutting rates and that's coming into focus. So what happened in a two-week period in the 1st of December that changed the attitude of the Federal Reserve when all the other indicators out there really don't suggest any real financial strain. That's the big question everybody's working with right now. 
what does the Fed know that we don't know? Um, or do they know anything? <laughs> I guess is the other question. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. But Mike, welcome to the show this morning. Of course, uh, happy Thursday. Um, kind of what's your initial Thank takeaway you. here? You know, the the uh, again, like I said, uh, a very rapid change to the FOMC and and Jerome Powell in just two weeks uh, from you know uh, we're nowhere near the neutral rate to we're at the neutral rate um, to take a line from 2018. But you know, we're seeing that same thing happen here. Kind of what's your what's your initial take? I think there's a liquidity problem that's slowly rising through the system. Uh, you know, like you said, the economy is doing well. Inflation is coming down, but it's still well above their target. So if you look at what their goals are, maximum employment and lower inflation, they have no right lowering rates right now, right? right. They, they still need to get inflation down and they've been able to do it so far without really harming the uh, labor markets. So what's going on? And, you know, I think you shared this graph a week or two ago. I may have shared it. It's a graph of overnight treasury repo versus Fed funds. And overnight treasury repo is where people borrow, institutions borrow, and they use treasury bonds as collateral for that loan. Fed funds are where banks lend money to each other without collateral overnight. Both are overnight loans. So if you just logically ask yourself, would I rather trade you know, make a uh, give money to a bank and hope to get it back the next day with no collateral or do that with a bank or a money market fund or a hedge fund or another institution. But there's Treasury collateral supporting it. Which would I rather do? The answer would be with collateral. And mm -hmm. accordingly, because of that, the collateral want the collateral loan should always trade slightly less than Fed funds. Recently, that's been 10 to 20 basis points above Fed funds at times, not consistently, but at times. That's a sign that there's just not enough, believe it or not, I'm going to say this, treasuries in the market. There's not enough collateral in the market. That's what that is telling you. We saw that in 2018, 2019, and we're seeing it again today. So why is it happening now versus why didn't it happen six months ago or why can't it happen a year from now? And that goes to the Fed. The Fed. There was an incredible amount excess liquidity in the system. The Fed introduced or reintroduced this overnight repurchase program. It's another repo program, but this time banks and money market funds and hedge funds and all kinds of institutions are lending money to the Fed. So the Fed has taken that liquidity out of the market. There was way too much liquidity. Right. And the Fed does that so that they can keep the Fed funds rate and money market rates where they want it to be. If they didn't do it, those rates would be lower than where the Fed wanted them to be. So in their hawkish maneuvers to try to get inflation down, they introduced this program. The program got as big as what, 2.4 trillion, just showing you how much extra liquidity was in the system. Well, now it's down to roughly 600 billion and dropping. There are some days it's dropping 34 billion a day, 30 to 40 billion a day. This program could be gone in six weeks, four weeks, whatever it's going to be. And the Fed is using that and the spread between what we talked about earlier, overnight repo versus Fed funds as a signal, as a gauge that liquidity is running out quickly. So the Fed. I believe because, you know, 
you know, they could begin to tap on the shoulder like we've talked about before mm-hmm. from the president. Hey, I'm running. You better fix this. You better get rates lower. They could know something about the banking sector that we don't know. You know, th- there's there there are other explanations, but every day that goes by, I'm beginning to think more and more they're trying to get ahead of a liquidity problem. And I forgot who it was. One of them was quoted last week as saying that we don't fully appreciate how many reserves, reserves equal liquidity, how many reserves are really in the system and how many are needed. So we rely on markets to tell us that. What he's telling you there, or she, I forgot who said it, but what they're telling you there is that they're looking at that spread of overnight repo to Fed funds, and it should always be flat to negative, and it's not. You know, so I think what's happened is that that spread went positive, and that alerted the Fed that there's a potential liquidity problem, and, you know, it's probably March. Well, what else happens in March? That's when the bank term funding, BTFP, bank term funding program expires. And the Fed has casually, not formally, but casually said that they're not going to extend it. So the banks will need to bolster their reserves, bolster their capital, potentially sell some assets going into that to to help offset some of some of uh, the demand, the uh, deposits that they've been losing. So I think what we're really seeing is the Fed is trying to get ahead of a liquidity problem as opposed to falling behind it like they so often do. (laughs) The problem they have, though, is that inflation is in 2% or below. It's higher. So will they freak out the markets that that they're starting to ease for all the wrong, not all the wrong reasons, but not the right reasons? And cause inflation expectations to rise, cause bond yields to rise and start to really weigh on the economy. Um, and that's what the Fed has. That's what the Fed is, I'm sure, weighing. They're discussing and, you know, going like you said, going back on their word. And, and it's it's a uh, it's a tricky box. The Fed has built themselves. And I think it's going to be trickier to exit it because, you know, what I think what what a lot of re- retail investors don't realize is how much liquidity drives these markets, how much leverage there is, and how much in the overnight markets rely on this liquidity. So it's not just treasuries, it's stocks, it's bonds, it's commodities, it's everything. So um, a lot man, a lot to unpack in that. So first of all, that BTFP program, the bank term funding program, was the program was put in place to bail out the regional banks back in March of 2023. And, you know, it's interesting the banks were using that funding program initially because their collateral values, because interest rates had gotten up to 5% on the 10-year treasury, their collateral values had fallen so much that, you know, we were having – banks that were getting taken over by the FDIC. Now that rates have come down, it's eased that pressure on the collateral market. Now the banks are just using that program to game it because they can borrow from it and run that against their other borrowing rates and make the spread in between. They can arbitrage that program. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens if the Fed, I can see why the Fed would end the program. They're like, well, you know, you're just gaming the system now to to make money. You obviously don't need the program. You're just using it for, for arbitrage. Um, so we'll end it. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens when the end of the program, if we don't if we don't happen to wind up right back into another collateral situation 
particularly with yields back on the rise here. Again, yields have been coming up here a little bit. They gotten, as I said, you know, the opening, the yields have gotten very overbought. So yields are coming down here a bit. But again, that is that rise in yields, even though a small amount is putting pressure back on those uh, of the collateral of those smaller regional banks. So it'll be interesting to see just at the time they end this program, if it doesn't cause another rash of, you know, a couple of banks, you know, having collateral issues. Yeah, I think what's really important here to to understand is how much leverage is in the system. And that that is so important because that leverage needs liquidity and a lot and some of that liquidity for leverage is simply in the overnight markets or in the one week markets, very, very short term loans that allow someone with $10 of equity to own $40 worth of assets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every night they're rolling over, you know, a couple dollars worth of loans and it's all fine as long as they can can roll that that debt over day after day. But if there's not enough liquidity, they have to sell some of the asset to account for the fact that they just can't borrow enough or that borrowing rate is too expensive. That's right. Yeah. And and that's, you know, this is, you know, this is the that's fractional reserve banking. That's how our whole system works. And it's all fine and dandy until something goes wrong with the leverage. And then you got all kinds of problems. All right. Quick break. Come back. Uh, Step out one more step. So Fed rate cuts, they're coming. Right question is when, but now we're talking about the end of QT, this whole reduction in the balance sheet um, after a massive expansion following the the pandemic. Now we're going to start reduce, uh, start increasing that balance sheet again. Really, already? We'll talk about that as well. We'll come back from the break. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Looking for clarity for your investments in the new year? You must attend our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier. Trump will be a big presence. The bigger story, in my opinion, is how weak Joe Biden is going to be. Is the Fed finished tightening? Liquidity, I think, is underestimated. Will rates ease this summer? States are still flush with cash. They haven't spent all their money from the pandemic relief bill. How will the election affect your investments? I don't see any political figure right now who can bring the country conclusively back together again. Register now for our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier with special guest Adam Taggart, plus Michael Lebowitz and Lance Roberts, Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier, Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Registration open now at realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning, of course. Uh, it's Thursday. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning, talking a little bit about rate cuts and this really kind of change of attitude. And you know, again, what Mike was talking about, we're going to finish up that conversation. He wants to add a little, uh, something to that. But before we get there, I just want to take you back in time. This is very similar to what we saw in 2018. We've talked about this before. 
But remember back in 2018, September, Fed is hiking rates. We're nowhere near the neutral rate. Um, of course, at that point, the market's declining. We're down about 20%. President Trump's all over Jerome Powell. There's, you know, conversations about can the president fire the Federal Reserve chairman, you know, this type of thing. And then in, in early December, um, Jerome Powell changes his mind. He says, oh, we're, we're actually closer to the neutral rate than we thought. And so we're fine. And then in July, they start cutting rates. And in September, they're doing this whole reverse repo bailout thing. And of course, we didn't know at the time what was going on, but certainly fragility to, to the system. And we're seeing a lot of that same evidence today. And, and that's the point that Mike was making is that you know, there seems to be some cracks within the financial system that is worrying the Fed, something that they see that we don't have direct access to, but a concern and a concern enough that the lack of liquidity could become more problematic very quickly um, in the months ahead if they don't start responding accordingly. So, Mike, you wanted to finish up that conversation. Yeah, I actually wanted to tell a little story of my past. A uh, long, long time ago, I was at Fannie Mae and I was managing our short-term investing and funding desk. And every day we would come in and there would be a piece of paper on our chairs and it was a summary of the company's cash flows. Of most important, it was a 30-day outlook, but of most important was that day. And every day, and I'm not kidding here, it would say, if all the payments and all the money that's coming in and out of the company come in and go out as expected, which which is what happens, You're, the company is going to be short X dollars. Sometimes that number was very minimal. Sometimes that number was 5 billion, 15 billion. It was over 20 billion. So you come in every day and you know, every once in a while there's a day where you're short 20 billion. If we didn't borrow 20 billion that day, Fannie Mae would not have been able to make good on some of their outgoing payments i.e. default. Again, you know, it's it's all kinds of payments. Some of it is due to investors. Some of it is rent, wages, you know, all kinds of things. But if we didn't raise 20 billion, 10 billion, whatever the number was, we would default. And that's because we had a portfolio of mortgages that was levered 40 to one. So we funded a lot of it with longer term debt, but there's still a lot of rollover debt needed to make good. So I use that example because these numbers are staggering. The amount of debt in the system, the banking system is all 10 times. Every bank is t roughly 10 times levered. So not 40 times, but 10 times, you know, and they are all using the overnight markets for funding. And if we were, you know, at Fannie Mae, if it would have been lunchtime and I would have said, you know, gone up to the uh, CFO and said, there's no way we can raise the 20 billion today, there would have been they would have done everything possible, you know, would have called JP Morgan, would have called the Federal Reserve, would have called whoever. But mm. if that wasn't possible, there would have been a massive asset sale that day that would have would have been very consequential, not just for the mortgage backed security market, but for every market, mm -hmm. including, you know, going all the way up to the dollar and, you know, commodities. Yeah. So and this is just one institution. Right. There's a lot of these institutions. We were a very big one at the time, but one of many. So I just wanted to kind of share that personal experience to 
belabor the point of how important these overnight markets are. And if those markets are not healthy, the health of every other market is at risk. Right. Well, again, this is, so this takes us kind of right into this other this whole other issue now of you know liquidity and and lack of liquidity and what's been draining liquidity, and of course you know we have to go back to March of 2020. So in March 2020, obviously we shut down the economy because of the pandemic. We already knew there was stress going on. The Fed was doing, um, you know, this uh, you know kind of reverse repo bailout in the, in the background had run about a trillion dollars of that through the end of 2019, um, you know, to supply liquidity to the market because there were fractures with that. And of course, in March of 2020, we shut down the economy. And in response to that, uh, the Federal Reserve starts this massive quantitative easing program, $120 billion a month, along with, uh, you know, buying, uh, you know, uh, high yield bond ETFs and a whole variety of other bailout programs all at the same time, just literally trillions of dollars of liquidity being shoved into the market, not to even mention what the government sending checks to households and a variety of other issues on top of that. But all in response to that, the, the Federal Reserve took their balance sheet from $4 trillion to $8 trillion, almost $9 trillion, in, in the course of a little bit over a year. Um, and of course, starting in 2023, they said, okay, we're going to start unwinding that. And we've, we've brought that down a little bit, but we're nowhere near back where we were pre-pandemic. Um, and now we're talking about the potential that the Fed may have to stop QT and start increasing their balance sheet again, again, back to this whole issue of providing liquidity to the markets. And I guess the question becomes really twofold is, is, you know, this is another kind of, you know, uh, obviously a message that says there's some other problems going on within the markets, but also just how big can this balance sheet get and be? And is it just going to, and are we just going to have a a nine, 10, $12 trillion balance sheet indefinitely in the future? Well, here's, here's kind of the answer. The answer is not really the Fed's balance sheet, but it's the balance sheet of every other institution out there. If you're going to continue to let those balance sheets grow, and by balance sheets, again, we're referring to leverage. If you're going to let them grow, the Fed's balance sheet has to grow with it. If it doesn't, they can't grow. There's not enough Mm -hmm. reserves in the system to allow them to grow. So if the Fed is not going to grow their balance sheet, the the big banks and, and all these other institutions have to deleverage. They're going to have to sell assets. So, you know, this is one of the reasons why assets have done a lot better than GDP, than the growth of the economy. That's the leverage component. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're willing to be in an environment where where a lot of assets and, you know, again, this isn't stocks. This is all kinds of assets, including real estate, get repriced to a, a lesser leverage environment then that's how we get the Fed balance sheet down permanently. Right. You know, it can go down for periods of time, but permanently. Well, so and the other side of that, the trade-off. Well, and the other side of it is, is that the, with the spending binge that the U.S. government continues to be in, right, um, there's mm-hmm. just a, a functional need that the, the Fed is going to have to monetize part of that, part of that debt um, issuance. You know, because, again, you know, to, the, to, the, to your point, we have a system that is highly leveraged. The banks, the financial system in its entirety, the real estate market, the mortgage market, the you know the the financial markets, 
all are running very, and, and the consumer is running a very, very high level of leverage relative to historical right. norms, which says that interest rates can't go up. You know, a lot of people are talking about, well, you know, interest rates are going to go to seven, eight, nine, ten percent can't because of all the leverage in the system. And, and particularly when we start talking about small cap and mid cap companies, the Russell 2000, massive debt wall coming next year. 24, 25, 26 is a massive debt wall that has to be refinanced for a vast majority of the small and mid cap companies that are out there. They can't refinance into a much higher interest rate environment. So, you know, it's, it's just a function that in order to keep interest rates at a level where the economy can actually operate and continue to operate, the Fed's going to have to monetize 30, 40 percent of that debt issuance when it comes out from the government. Right. Right. It has it really has no choice. Right. And, you know, when you ask, what would I do if I was the Fed chair? You know, it's very easy to say I would bring rates to 10 percent and kind of get this leverage out of the system. But getting this leverage out of the system is changing our lifestyles. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about a depression to bring asset values back to something more in line with the economy. And, and that's I, I think, you know, every president, every Fed chairman, you know, a lot of congressmen that they, they run on these lofty, you know, especially the government, mm -hmm. they run on lofty plans that I'm going to solve these problems. But when they're really told the truth, when they have that first day in office, fixing the problem is difficult. You, you know, you um, the, the best answer, especially for someone that's only going to be in a seat for four years or eight years or whatever it may be, is to perpetuate the problem, not do it on my watch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see that with the Fed chairman, chairwoman. Um, and it's it, it's awful, but that's what's going on, that the amount of leverage in the system almost by default has to increase if we were to continue to see growth in the economy and in financial asset valuations. Right. And, you know, and look, at some point, does the does the shell game end, so to speak? And the answer is yes. And you're going to go through another 20 year period like we saw in early 2000s or in the 60s and the 70s or in the 30s and 40s where you're going to have asset value. You know, uh, stock prices basically go nowhere for a very extended period of time as you work through this overvaluation process. But again, you know, when that occurs, who knows? And what causes it? Who knows? Um, hopefully, I just won't be around when that occurs. <laughs> so we'll see. All right, quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about that, actually. Um, valuations, markets, and uh, kind of where we are now. We'll talk about that with Michael Eves. We'll come back from the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, futures pointing higher. Um, this morning they were, they were a little bit flattish early and then uh, now looking a lot better. 
Uh, NASDAQ's up about 20 points. Uh, sorry, S&P's up about 20 points uh, heading into the open. NASDAQ's up 142 points heading into the open, up almost uh, 85 bips. Dow is down 20 bips. And uh, this, so the interesting thing, and Mike and I have been discussing this here recently and uh, talking about it, um, you know, last year, it was the, the, the run of the MAGA 7, uh, the Magnificent 7. Um, <laughs> sorry, slipped the tongue. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was the Magnificent 7 that were driving the markets most of the year. And then in November and December, a lot of rebalancing um, going on. Uh, you know, funds were exceptionally long, these, you know, top 10 stocks. And as we got to the end of the year, they needed to rebalance and bring a lot of those other shares up to weight, which has been under a lot of pressure last year. So we saw a, a kind of this end of the year move where a lot of the, the laggards uh, gained some traction. And so we said, hey, well, maybe this is going to be a new move as we move into 2024. Um, we'll see a year where maybe the laggards outperform the leaders. And, uh, and it seemed that way in the first couple of days of the year. Uh, NASDAQ sold off and, and we saw a lot of the laggards you know, still kind of doing well. And, and turns out that a lot of that was just tax gain selling for the new year. And really, ever since the first couple of days, it's been back to the the magnificent seven the mega cap growth stocks have been outperforming small cap mid cap pretty much everything else in the markets uh, in fact that brief spurt of activity in small and mid cap has completely reversed now so it seems so far that we're kind of back into that same groove and this morning um this market is going to be led up by microsoft google amazon those stocks again so uh, hasn't changed a whole lot. But valuations uh, in all these companies, particularly when you take a look at technology in particular, is at historically high levels. And particularly when you talk about these top 10 stocks, their valuations as a, a comparison to the rest of the 493 um, in the index or small cap, mid cap valuations are extremely expensive. And, you know, but, but to Mike's point, and, you know, this has been all a function of leverage. In fact, you know, we've talked about this before. We've written articles on it. You know, you look at the average rate of return for stocks from 1900 to 20, 2008, averaged about 8% a year, which is what you would expect. Economic growth plus inflation is 8% a year with dividends. Um, so you get about 8% a year. And that's, that's about what you would expect from the market over time because it reflects the economic activity. And Mike made a good point in the last segment. He said, well, stocks have gotten detached from the economy because of all this leverage. And he's right. Since 2008, when we started doing all of these QE programs and, um, you know, uh, Operation Twist and, you know, government interventions and all, all kinds of stuff, um, the average rate of return from 2009 through 2023 has been about 12%. So we've added about a 4% annualized rate of return to stocks since the end of the last bear market in 2008. Question becomes sustainability, right? How much leverage does it take? It's kind of like, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a lollipop? Um, but how much leverage does it take to maintain these types of returns and valuations going in the future? And is it sustainable considering the fact that the more leverage you have, the less economic growth you get? It's a, it's a very interesting conundrum that we face between the reality of debt and interest rates and what happens in the economy versus what the markets can generate.
And so far, there's been a very clear detachment. The question becomes sustainability. Mike, I mean, this is going to be the thing that I think we're going to wrestle with and, and most people in financial markets are going to wrestle with going forward is this, this deviation between what markets should return and what they are returning. Right. And it also helps explain the bulls and the bears and, you know, longer term bulls and bears, why some people think the S&P is going to 50,000. You know, you see these headlines every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Well, it's because they think that the leverage in the system will only increase. And over time, it's going to just keep going up and up and up because no one is really willing to pop that leverage bubble. And then you can see the other side of these, the, you know, the, the, the depression type crew that that are saying the opposite, that this is unsustainable. We can't keep borrowing this much money. At some point, something's got to happen to stop that leverage. And like I said, everyone's got to sell assets. So, you know, understanding that is the fundamental driver really helps you understand in the longer term, not why the market's going to be up for the next six months or down, but helps you understand why the trajectory is probably higher. But if there's any interruptions to that leverage, you know, and that, you know, that that can really set us back, mm -hmm. uh, set the markets back. So, you know, that that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a very precarious uh, Mark, and when I say markets, again, it's all markets, including real estate. It's not just the stock market or just the mag seven or just, you know, some subset of the market. It, it's everything. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the Fed is in control. There's a lot of, believe it or not, a lot of trust and confidence in the Fed. The government can still borrow money very, very easily. It rates are a little bit higher, but it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of what we have to assume is that leverage will continue to do what leverage does and it will support asset prices. Does Again, it doesn't mean the market can't fall 20% this year because we go into a recession. But what it does try to help ensure is that the trajectory is generally higher over longer periods of time. So, uh, you know, this this notion of what the Fed will do or what they won't do it's not just, you know, we got to get employment down. We got to get flight prices down. It's we have to manage this financial mm -hmm. system and this leverage. And that's why why we have to speak about the Fed so often, because at the end of the day, they're, you know, no one's ever going to say it. Their most important job is managing liquidity in the system. And liquidity drives these markets up and down. And that's why you know, Lance and I talk about the Fed all the time. If we were doing this show 20 years ago, <laughs> our, we would talk about the Fed once in a while, but it wouldn't certainly be every day. And the daily, the, the you know, we would probably talk about what Greenspan said at this meeting or that meeting, and that would be about it. We wouldn't know the names of most of the other Fed members or even know that they were speaking and saying stuff. Mm -hmm. But they hold the keys to the liquidity car and... That's that's what we're following. Yeah, and I guess you know, and and the big question obviously is like, okay, well, Mike, well, you know, what causes you know the end game here, which is what a lot of people are expecting at some point. And and look, there's there's going to be a point that this leverage gets reversed, and you know what will cause that? We have no idea. You know, we can go back and look at 2008 as a good example. Lots of leverage in the system in 2008, and then actually things were okay in 2008. 
until Lehman got forced into bankruptcy and everybody started questioning who they could trade with that might be in business tomorrow. That's mm-hmm. that's the big question, right? And and so, you know, something like that will happen again. Though, you know, we'll get to the point to where we start, you know, kind of throw caution. And we're we're seeing some of this stuff now. You know, we're seeing this with the buy now, pay later, um, you know, companies, et cetera. You know, we start stretching out there. Oh, well, you know, a little bit of credit risk is okay. Everything's fine there. So how about a little bit more credit risk? And oh, that worked okay. So how about a little bit more credit risk? And we'll start figuring out ways to to game the system and leverage it even more and to generate higher rates of return, which the markets will demand. And then something will blow up. Um, whether, you know, 1987, it was portfolio insurance. In 1999, it was faulty accounting. Um, you know, there's there's always that point to where the market gets a little too smart for itself and something blows up and then we have to kind of you know work through that process we don't see that right now we don't have you know the subprime loans at the moment so when people talk about oh we're gonna have this financial crisis again not not right now we have a lot of debt but we don't have a lot of those risky loans that were out there but they're going to come back it's just a function of uh, of of kind of when they come back and kind of what form they take you know, we saw a brief moment with SPACs, and those have ended badly, of course, as we knew they would. Um, but, you know, those are the things that Mike and I are looking for as, as we go f- further and, and go, go out in the future. There's just, you know, so much leverage in the system when something finally breaks, you know, it will, it will cause a problem. And, it's in, and, and, Mike, it's been interesting because, you know, you would have thought mortgage rates at 7%. Would have really negatively impacted the housing market, but it really didn't. To a, I mean, we saw housing prices come down somewhat, but you know, we didn't see. You know, a lot of people were expecting a big crash in the housing market. Maybe that's still yet to come, but you know, rates are coming down. Home builder confidence is improving. Uh, people are you know anxious to try to buy a house now with lower rates. So again, well, you know, there doesn't seem to be much out there at the moment. Credit risk spreads are very low. Doesn't seem to be, you know, a lot of risk in the credit markets currently, despite the amount of leverage that's out there. But it doesn't mean it's not going to show up at some point. Yeah, it definitely will. And I think what matters is trust and confidence in the Fed. Right. In 2008, it was the Fed that ultimately stopped the the banking dominoes from falling. And so, you know, I think as much as we may not want to see it because it's not good for, for us in the longer run, the Fed being proactive with cutting rates and potentially tapering QT is what these asset markets want to see. They want to know that the Fed will not get let this system get down to the point where we have a leverage, a, a liquidity crisis. And that's why the markets have been doing very well, both bond and stock markets. And as long as the Fed kind of does this very market-friendly uh, walk, uh, I think it's in good hands. And keep in mind, when they were raising rates aggressively, that was also market-friendly. Yeah. All right. That wraps up the show for the day, of course. As always, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the link to get your tickets to the upcoming economic Summit. Mike's going to be there to talk about the bond market, the Fed, all that. And you can ask him questions live while you're there at the event. So click in, get your tickets now. It's not not this Saturday, but next Saturday, January 27th. We'll see you there. Click the banner, get your tickets. Have a great day.